I'm excited this morning. We're continuing this series uh, that we've been in called My Church. I hope you've been enjoying it. And uh, we've talked talking about values that we hold uh, near and dear to us and how they inform and influence uh, why we do what we do and how we do what we do. Now, values are different than our vision, right? The vision that we have at Faith Community is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. We believe that God has a plan for every person's life, and that plan is fourfold, right? We say it every week, right? That God's plan for us, number one, is to know him, salvation. Number two, for us to find freedom every area of our life. Number three, discover the purpose that he created and redeemed us for. And number four, to make a difference. And when we make a difference using the gifts and talents we have, we'll find fulfillment in life. That's the vision, but the values are what help us to accomplish that vision and and hold us to that and inform and guide how we do what we do and why we do what we do. And the theme verse for this series has come out of Daniel chapter 6, verse 3. And uh, if you'll remember, Daniel is an Israelite man, but he's living in captivity. He's living in captivity to the Babylonian Empire. They've overthrown the Israelites, and Daniel is living in that Uh, society, but he's found himself become elevated while essentially being a slave in a foreign land by a set of values that he has. And here's what the Bible says about Daniel. It says, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps, the leaders, by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. The qualities and the values that Daniel had gave him influence and honor in a land that was not his own. That not just the leadership of the nation, but the king of the entire country saw Daniel and gave him influence and power within that kingdom. And we just believe that as God has already given faith community influence and honor and opportunity in this community, that he wants to give us even more. And it's important for us to talk about the values that we hold near and dear. So week one, we talked about the value that my church enjoys life. And we said from the very onset, we have to get it settled in our hearts and in our minds that God wants us to enjoy life. Can I get an amen? Come on. And they said that church should be fun, right? That we should enjoy coming to church week in and week out. That it should be something that we look forward to. And that when I say fun, I don't mean that we're not going to talk about things that are serious and important and eternal, but we are going to do it in such a way that it's life-giving because we believe that the, the life and the presence of Jesus is in this place. Right? And we should look forward to it. It'd be something that our kids should look forward to. We took a look at Jesus in the Bible and saw how the kids jumped up on his lap and were hanging all over him. And those of you that have kids know this that kids don't want to be around boring people, right? They don't just jump on anybody, but Jesus was inviting and there was life giving. And we said that if we are really going to enjoy life, the first thing we have to do is we have to love life, right? We have to develop a high appreciation for the life that we have. Because Jesus said this, he said, I've come that you may have life and have it in abundance and enjoy it. And God values the life that he gave us so much that he gave his only son for us. So we need to love life. Number two, we need to love people, like really love people. And not just love people in our theology and love people in our songs and our prayers and our preaching, but love people with our lives and our actions. We're just going to love people. And the third one was this, that we're going to love God. And we are not just going to say that we love God. And you say, well, how do I really just love God? It begins by receiving his love. Because scripture tells us this, that it's not that we first loved him, but that he first loved us, right? That God loved us first. We didn't do anything first when it comes to him. So we're going to enjoy life. We're going to have fun. Number two, 
is last week we talked about this, that my church exists for others, right? My church exists for others. It exists for the people that are outside of these four walls who don't yet know who Jesus is. And in our county alone, in Jefferson County, there are 140,000 people who say they are irreligious, meaning they, have, they are indifferent or hostile to the cause of religion and God. And that we are never going to be a church that says us for and no more and we've done enough, right? We've grown enough. We've reached enough people. No, enough will never be in our language because there's something that compels us from the inside that we exist for people whose names we don't even know that we may never meet but that it's about growing the kingdom of God and we're going to fight the tension to make it about us, right? We're going to fight the tension to make it about our preferences and, and those things and that we're going to do essentially four things right? And existing for others. And these four things are not new and exclusive to us. In fact, they come straight from the Bible and the Jesus's final words to his followers, which have become known as the Great Commission. And that appears 12 times in the New Testament. And we're going to do those four things. We're going to go and reach people, right? We're going to reach them right where they're at. We're going to reach the people that we work with, reach the people that we shop with, reach the people that, that we do life with. We're going to reach them where they are, and then once we reach them, they're going to come into this place and we're going, to, we're going to admonish them or we use the word warn them. We're going to help them grow, help them understand what it means to be a Christ follower and what that life looks like. And then we're going to teach them. What are we going to teach them about the purpose and the calling that God has on their life that every person, like we talked about last week, Ephesians 2.10, every person, person is God's workmanship. They are God's masterpiece and they have a life worth living. And then number four, we said that we're going to help people fulfill that purpose. Help people get in a vein where they, they just are flowing and finding their gifts and talents. That's what we're going to help them do. So that's the first two values. Here's the, the third one I want to talk about today, and it dovetail, dovetails right into what we talked about last week, and that is my church empowers others. My church empowers others. What do you say, what do you mean, Josh, when you say empowers others? Here's what I mean, and this is kind of the, this is the statement that I want us to all come to a place of, of understanding and believing today, is, is that I have a firm belief, and we at Faith Community have this belief, the greatest ministry that will ever come out of this church is sitting in the seats right now. Let that sink in for a moment. The greatest things that God wants to do through Faith Community is sitting down right now in these seats. It's you. Because the church is not the pastor, right? The church is not the staff. The church is not the people on the stage doing things. The church is me and the church is you. And what I'm, what I'm going to put forth today and what we're going to talk about is this. Is, is that we will never be a church where the clergy or the pastors do all the work and the people just kind of sit there and watch. We don't already do that, okay? And we're not going to do that. But we believe that, that like we talked about a, about a month ago in our series Legacy, that Paul said that we want to live a life worthy of our calling, that every single person on the face of the earth that God has created has a calling and a plan and a purpose for their life, and we want to empower them to help to find that, discover it, and then to live that out. Because God has gifted and anointed you, and, and you are unique to reach a certain group or even a certain person. You will reach people that I will never reach, never reach and vice versa. And I think that, that the question that we have to really answer is this, or at least ask and attempt to answer, is why? 
Why don't I feel empowered? Because maybe there's some of us in here today that said, I I don't really feel empowered to do what you're talking about. I don't feel empowered to minister in some capacity, right? Because I think there's pastors, and then there's there's the people that just come and kind of support the pastor. Like, I think traditionally what has happened is, is that people sitting in the church say, well, I empower the church. The church doesn't really empower me. You know, like I come, I give, you know what I mean? I support, I do, I empower them. I kind of lift them up to do what they're supposed to do. And that's, that's part of the issue that I want to address is because I think historically uh, we've gotten it wrong in the church in some respect. Some, not every church, but, but a majority of the church has gotten it wrong throughout the years. And I think there's, there's a historical component to this question of why, and then there's a spiritual component to this question of why I don't necessarily feel empowered or I'm not living a life that is empowered. First off is historically. You know, historically, the church, what they've done is, is they've empowered a specific group of people, a, a, an exclusive group of people, and they've come to be known as the clergy. Anybody heard that term, clergy? Right, we don't use it too much in this in this tradition, but in a lot of Christian traditions, the word clergy is, is very prevalent. I just want to let you know, the word clergy never appears in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. When Jesus came to do what he did, right, to, to, to give his life as a sacrifice, that was God's ultimate plan and intention that, intention that we would all be able to minister and, and use the gifts and talents that we have to reach people. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that we are all ministers of the gospel, Did you know that? Whether your job title is minister and whether you get paid to be a minister, if you're a Christ follower, you're a minister of the gospel in some capacity. Wherever you work, whatever you do, you're a minister, and that's God's plan. But historically, what has happened is is that we created this specific subgroup of people called clergy, and then we elevated them to to a higher level than it ever intended to be, so that even like part of why there's a stage today and I'm standing and you're sitting is kind of resembling the the divide that was created. The clergy stands on the stage and the people sit, and then you know that's just kind of how it works. And that's never what God intended, right? In God's eyes. Pastors or clergy or ministers or priests, whatever you want to say, are held not in higher esteem than anybody else. Responsibility may be different, but we are equal in God's eyes. My job is no more important than yours in the kingdom of God. Right? What I do is, is of no greater value to God than what you do. And I know that it may, it may be hard for us to realize that because we have this, you know, well, you're a pastor, a pastor. You know what I mean? We, we hold them in such high regard, and I get it, I get it. But we're all the same in God's eyes, and every role that we play is important and is specific and is of the equal value to God in the grand scheme of things of, in his kingdom. So historically, we've created an imbalance, the clergy and then the people. When we're, we're all that, right? We're all ministers, just want to settle that right here. And in fact, what I want to let you know is that scripturally, scripturally, the Bible never says that the pastors should do all the work. You know, the Bible never says that pastors are responsible for the ministry of the church. In fact, in Ephesians, when it's talking about, uh, talking about what the role of it should be, it says, you know, God's given some to be pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists. And when it says pastors, it says, here's what they're supposed to do. That a pastor is supposed to equip, some translations say the saints, it's kind of odd today, so we'd say the people who follow Jesus, 
the people in the church who say that they're Christians, to equip them and empower them to do the work of the ministry. That's what Scripture says, that a pastor's job is to equip and empower people to do the work of the ministry. I think what we've done is we've flipped that around, right? We're like, well, no, the pastor, we pay him, he does the work, right? Like the staff, they get paid to minister, and we just come to participate. And that's, that's not what God intended. So what we're going to talk about today is, is the fact we want, to be, we want to be scripturally sound, right? We want to be doing what God had intended because that's God's plan. And when we do things God's way, we get God's results. And they're a lot better than our results. So that's kind of the historical, practical perspective. And I want to dig in deeper to the, the more spiritual perspective of why I don't feel empowered. We can, we can come to terms with the fact that, you know, historically it's been this way. But spiritually is where I think it really, really is there's an obstacle for us to overcome. And what I want to do is I just want to share with you kind of four pictures that we have of God. Because how we view God determines how we interact with him. Really, how we we view anything determines how we interact with it. And it's so important for us to answer that question of how, how do we view him? And who do we say that he is? You know, Jesus asked that same question to his disciples. He was walking with them, and they were out doing a bunch of things, him and these 12 guys, and, and he's walking with them and having a discourse with them as they go from one town to the other, and he, and he looks at them and, and says, I have a question for you. He says, who do people say that I am? At this point, he's been going around and preaching and healing and, and making all these kind of crazy claims, right? And he says, who do people say that I am? And his disciples, they start talking, and some say, well, they, some say you're John the Baptist, right? And some say that, that you're Elijah. And some say that you're just, you're just another one of the prophets. That, that's what people are saying. And then what Jesus does is he looks at his disciples, and he says this. He says, no, but here's the question. He says, who do, who do you say that I am? You, you've been with me, right? You've been walking with me, and I've been teaching. Who, who do you say that I am? He goes from what do other people say to what do you say? And Peter, who's always the first one to respond, whether he's right or wrong, always the first one to respond, says, Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are the Christ. Peter takes it from being, yeah, you're, you're like John the Baptist. You know, you're a prophet or Elijah or just one of the other guys. No, you, you, Jesus, you're the Son of God. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, You're exactly right, Peter. And the only way that you could have known that is if God told you himself. That's the question I would submit to you. Who do you say that he is? What is your picture of him? Even if you're a Christ follower in here today, if you would say that you're a Christian, who do you say that he is? I want to share with you four pictures that people hold of God. Four pictures. Only one of these pictures is correct. And as we go through these pictures, I want you to self-identify. I want you to to look at this. and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything like that. But I want you to identify where you're at on this picture. What view of God do you hold? And here's the first picture. The first picture that people hold of God or the first view they hold is that he's a locked gate. He's a locked gate. What do you mean by a locked gate? mean that only a specific group of people get in. That it's like an exclusive club to get in good with God. You've got to be somebody, right? You've got to do a certain amount of things. You've got to give and serve. And you you just got to be a really good person. And it's only reserved for a few. Only only the good enough people get in. 
And you know the reality is, I just want you to, to know this, is, is that God does not operate through exclusivity. Okay? And God does not see you uh, as an outsider waiting for you to qualify to get in so he can hand you the key to unlock the gate and become a part of this exclusive group of people. That's the first view, is a locked gate. Here's the second view. Second view is, is more so a view of ourselves that we see God through, and that's a pile of luggage. Some of us, when we, when we look at God and we think of our relationship with him and in terms of him, we just think that, that we have got so much baggage we take a look at our past and we're looking behind us and we're saying that there is no way that, that God would ever be able to deal with all this stuff. I mean, the places that I've been, the things that I've done, the people that I've done them with, and we just begin to say that God, he's going to judge me based on my past. That if God only knew everything that I brought to the table, there's no way that he would accept me. And we start disqualifying ourselves, right? We start making ourselves not, not be good enough for God. And what we don't realize is, is that God isn't judging us based on our past, right? God is, is only looking at us through the lens of the finished work of his son Jesus, meaning that he's looking at us through what Jesus did on the cross and his forgiveness and his sacrifice for us. Because scripture is full of people with a pile of luggage and the people that God used. I mean, these people, they, they weren't good people. We idolize them and we memorialize them because they've made the cut for Scripture and we only focus on the good things that they've done. But when you take a look at their lives, you're like, man, these are bad people that God used. I mean, you, you take a look at David, for example. David is called in Scripture a man after God's own heart, but we cannot separate that from the fact that he wanted a woman named Bathsheba, but she was married and he took her anyway and got her pregnant. And the way he dealt with it was he had her husband killed in the end. So he, he wants a woman so bad that he has her husband killed so that he can just take her as his own. That's, that's a pile of luggage right there. If you're in here and you equal that, which I don't think anybody does. Then, then you, you read more. You, you can even read about Moses, the man who, who led the children of Israel out of the nation of Egypt. Like, in, in, in some people's eyes, it's Jesus, then Moses, right? I mean, Moses is the man in Scripture. But Moses also was a murderer. Moses was also somebody who was very slow to obey God, right? I mean, God did some miraculous things for him. And Moses is like, I don't, I don't really know, man. I don't think I can do, I can do that. No, God, I can't do it like that. Moses had a pile of luggage. Peter in the New Testament, right? The man who said that Jesus was the Son of God, who, who, was, who wrote two books of the Bible, was a man that at the end of Jesus' life denied him, right? In public, denied Jesus, denied ever knowing him because he was afraid. Pile of luggage. Here's the fact. God doesn't really care about your pile of luggage in terms of the fact that he wants to redeem it. Your past and your pile of luggage will never keep you from gaining access to God in terms of you trying to use it as a bargaining chip. If you let it become a barrier, it'll be a barrier for you, but it's not a barrier for God. Let's put it that way. Just know, God, he, he, he saw that pile of luggage before you ever, you ever were aware of it. I love what Joyce Meyer says. She said, God knew what he was getting before he got it. And he took it anyway. And he wanted it anyway. That's the second picture. Here's the third picture, the third view that some of us hold, is that God is just, just an endless ladder, right? 
that, you know, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we work, we'll never earn it. We'll never be good enough. Like, there's always another class to go to. There's always another offering to give. There's always another place to serve. There's always another prayer to pray. And we just got to do so much stuff to be good enough in the eyes of God, right? Like, if we can't climb the ladder, it's just too tall, and there's too many rungs, and it's moving too fast, and we'll never be good enough, and we're just trying to earn it and earn it and earn it, and that's what's called a works-based mentality, but that's where some of us are. That's where I lived for years, climbing the ladder, trying to be good enough for God, not realizing that he accepted me because of Jesus, not because of my works. I don't know if any of you identified in those three. Whether you see God as a locked gate, I'm just not getting in. Exclusive group of people, right? God already picked them. What does it matter? Two, pile of luggage. My, my luggage is big and it doesn't even have wheels on it, so I can't even pull it. Three, just an endless ladder. Here's the fourth view, and this is the only correct view, is that God is a free gift. A free gift. This is the only correct view of God. And when it comes to salvation and being in relationship with him, he's a free gift. It's not a locked gate. The gate is open. We can go through it if we, if we want to. He, he's not a pile of luggage. He, he's not an endless letter. He's a free gift that he gives to us, not on the basis of what we've done or what we'll ever do for him. He does it on the basis of Jesus and the fact that he created us and that he loved us. I want to read some scriptures to you because that's, it ain't preaching if there's not scripture, right? So here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. This is Paul. Paul says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul said, hey, it's by grace that we're saved. What's grace? Unmerited, unearned favor from God. Grace is, is the empowerment to live the life that we want to live. And it's given as a gift. As a gift. It's unearned. It's unmerited. Anytime it can be earned or it can be merited, it ceases to be a gift. And then here's what Paul would write later in his life to his young protege, Timothy, a man that he had spent time uh, pouring out to and being a mentor to. And this is what Paul has to say and in reflection really towards the end of his life. He said, Timothy, I, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who's given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief, but the grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul, you have to understand, Paul was a violent man. Paul was a guy that was hunting down Christians in the early days and killing them simply because they believed in Jesus. That was Paul's job. Like he, would, he, would, he was a bounty hunter, right? And the bounty was death. And when he found him, he had him killed. But he encountered Jesus on one of those journeys on a, on a way to a place called Damascus. And Jesus revealed himself to him. And he experienced the grace of God. And he was never the same. And he went on to write two-thirds of the New Testament, right? Arguably has the greatest understanding of who Jesus is and what that means for our lives. That's who Paul is. And you notice he said, it's the grace of the Lord Jesus and it's given as a gift. It's a gift. We can't earn it. Can't earn it. Ever. 
And even after you get it as a gift, you don't keep it or, or sustain it by what you do. It is sustained by Jesus himself. As I said already, the moment that you earn something and the moment that it's merited to you based on your work or based on some achievement, it ceases to be a gift. In order for a gift to be a gift, you can't earn it. You can only do one thing, and that's receive it. And when it comes to God and and gaining access to him and being in relationship with him, I love what it says in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, verse 35. If you've ever wondered who can be a Christian and who can follow uh, Jesus and who can accept this gift of forgiveness, here's the answer right here. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson phrases it in the message. He says this, It makes no difference who you are or where you're from. If you want God and are ready to do as he says, the door is Open. Open. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you came from. doesn't matter how much baggage you have. The doors, if you want God, if you realize in your life that you need him and you need a change and you need forgiveness because there's stuff that is bigger than you and more powerful than you, if you're ready to give your life to him and, and let him take over, man, the door is open. You don't have to... Qual- you know what? Here's the thing. The, the only qualification to receive the gospel is to be a sinner. And we're all really good at that. You just got to screw up in life, right? You just got to recognize that you've screwed up, recognize that you need Jesus. So you don't, like, we don't even have to work at being qualified. We're just qualified by the fact that we're born in sin. Only thing is, we just got to say, yep, I need it. I need a power greater than myself who's Jesus that can forgive me and not just forgive me, but that can, that can empower me to live the life that I want to live, to live beyond the addiction, to live beyond the anger, to live beyond whatever it is. And you say, what's that have to do with empowerment? I say everything. Everything. Because God says that you're a masterpiece, right? That you're his workmanship, created in advance to do good works. And if we don't view God properly, we'll never be empowered. But if we view him correctly, we'll realize that he empowered us from the moment that we said yes to Jesus. We're empowered. So it always comes to a practical point where you say, okay, what can we, what can we do with that? I just want to share three things with you today to conclude this, of how you could really walk in the empowerment and how as a church we want to lead people into empowerment. You know, Paul, again in Ephesians, he, he helped plant this church in the city of Ephesus, helped raise it up. He wrote letters to them to help them to continue to live on in the life. So he, he went in there, he starts the church, he raises it up, and then in chapter 3, he has a prayer for them, for these people that are sitting in the, in the church and becoming part of the life of the church. This is what Paul says to them. And this, I'm going to read this verse. It's, it's Ephesians 3, 16 through 21. It's going to kind of go through these three points. But, but this would really be our prayer as a church for you, my prayer as a pastor for you. Here's what Paul says. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, that he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. This is a prayer of a a pastor, of an apostle, someone that raised up a church and is now leading people. His prayer is for empowerment for the people, not for himself, but for the people. Here's three things. Three things that we can do to be empowered. And here's the first one, is that we have to receive his love. We have to. We have to receive it. Don't earn it. 
Don't try to qualify for it. Don't try to be good enough for it. Don't try to list out your accomplishments for God. Simply just receive it. Continuing on, verses 18 and 19 of that, Ephesians, he says this, And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. I love that. Paul says, hey, I pray that you're going to be empowered by his spirit, but here's a continuation of my prayer. I want you to understand how wide, how long, how high, and how deep the love of God is. And don't just understand it. I want you to experience it as well. Some people say, well, you can't have an experience of God. You need to understand him. And some people say, well, you need to understand him and blah, 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 blah. You need both. We need an understanding of his love, but we need an experience of his love, right? We need an encounter with him. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, that my church encounters God. But we just, we have to receive his love. Our posture can't be to go to God and beg him for his love. We just receive it. Any of you that have ever been given a gift by someone, even at Christmas, you know you're going to get a gift. Do you beg the person that's given you the gift? I mean, they've already decided that they're giving it. They went out, they bought it with their own money, they wrapped it, they spent the time, they're there to give it to you. Do you beg them for it, or do you just receive it? You just receive it. We receive his love. That's the first one. Here's the second thing that we need to do, is that you need to know your worth. Know your worth. You know, you can tell the worth of something by the price that's paid for it. Anything of value that we have and that we hold came at a price, right? You can buy cheap shoes and save a lot of money, but they're going to make your feet hurt and they're going to break down. Or you can spend a little extra money and buy some good shoes and they're going to last you a while and they're going to save your back and your legs and everything else. The value on your life is only ever determined by God. No one else can determine your value. No one. You can believe something about yourself. But God ultimately determines and assigns the value of your life. And in my preparation for this message, and I was talking through it yesterday, I just really felt kind of God resting right here on this moment. Because there's so many people in the world, and some of us sitting here today, probably more than what we want to acknowledge, where you have been told something by somebody, somebody has done something to you to destroy your value. They've said things about you, they have, they have done things to you that tries to destroy and strip away the worth that you have as a human being, and I just feel like the Lord wants you to know today that regardless of what anyone has said or done to you, they do not control your value. They are not the one assessing and determining and doling out the value of your life. God alone is the determining factor and the deciding one who says that you have value. And the value that he placed on your life was the fact that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, for you. That's the value that you have. You matter to God. God did not choose an exclusive group of people who were valuable to him. He gave his son Jesus that whoever, whoever, whosoever would believe in him. Whoever. It's available to anyone. Remember Acts? The door's wide open. If you want want him and you want to do what he has to say, you have value. Take those voices, take those experiences, 
I'm not asking you to act like they never happen, but I'm asking you to shut or turn the volume down and shut the door to those things and begin to receive his love and say, God, you determine my value. You have placed the value on my life. Peter would say this, talking to the early Christians. He said this, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. This is Peter writing to those people saying, hey, look, you're, you're a chosen nation. You're holy. You're, you're a royal priesthood. I mean, you're all ministers of this covenant that we call grace in Jesus. That's who you are. God called you out of darkness and into his wonderful and inescapable light. Know your worth. Because if you don't think you're worth anything, you won't live an empowered life. But you are worth something. And that's why, as a church, we have a value that we will empower you. You know, if I were to only ever do all the ministry in the church and not empower any of you to do anything in the church, did you know I would be devaluing you? Because Scripture says that that a pastor, a minister, is supposed to equip and empower the people. And if I choose not to equip and empower and do it all myself, what I'm saying is is that you aren't valuable. What I'm saying is also the guy doesn't know what he's doing. But really that point of get it, if if we don't empower and if we don't equip and if we don't don't push a little bit to to get involved and discover your purpose and, and begin to make a difference, we are devaluing you and the calling that God has on your life and the gifts and the talents that he placed in you. Because remember... The greatest ministry that will ever come out of this church is sitting in these seats right now. It is inside of you, not just inside of me, not just inside of anybody else that stands on this stage, but it's inside of you. And that's the third one, the third thing that we have to do. And I believe that the hope of the church and the hope of the world depends on this right here, and that is fulfill your purpose. Receive his love, Know your worth, and then fulfill your purpose. Fulfill it. And it may not be something that gets recorded in the annals of history or makes the the evening news or is preached about in 20 or 30 years from now, but it is effective, and it it is what God has called you to do, and it will impact somebody, and it will grow his kingdom, and you will live a happier, more fulfilled life when you're empowered. Here's what Paul, again, concluding this prayer. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's one of my favorite verses. Now to him who is able, some versions say, to do exceedingly and abundantly above anything that we could ask for or imagine. And I love the refrain, at the power that is at work where? It doesn't say within the pastor. It doesn't say within specific people. It says within us. That's Jesus in us. It's Jesus in us that is able to do exceedingly and immeasurably more than we ever thought possible. So my encouragement to you today is dream big. Dream big. Begin to ask God, what is it that you have 
not just called me to do, but what is it that you've put in me to do? How can I be effective where I'm at? And don't think in terms of what have you called faith community to do. Think of in terms of what have you called me to do because we're the church. Faith community isn't the church. You and I are the church. Faith community is just the name over the door and it ain't going to heaven with us. We all are. The only thing that goes with us are people. Dream big. Have a proper view of God. Where did you end up on that spectrum today? Where, was your, where did your view of God fall? Was it a locked gate? Was it a pile of luggage? Was it an endless ladder? Or was it a free gift? My prayer and encouragement is, is that if you ended on either one of those three, that throughout this process today and even beyond, you begin to shift into that mindset that God, your free gift that you've given to me and you want to empower me. And then you can know that you're part of a church that wants to empower you. And here's the practical step also to, to really living empowered and, and a step you can take within this church is we have growth track. We're pausing it right now just for the Freedom Project. It'll launch again in April and it's going to be immediately following the second service. Growth track is a four-week a four-week thing. You give us four weeks, we'll help you discover your purpose. You go to Growth Track, you'll learn a little about the church, learn some habits to be a healthy believer. Then week three, it's called discovery. You'll take a personality test, you'll take a spiritual gift assessment, you'll learn about who you are, and then we'll help get you plugged in in some way, in some form of ministry within the church, whether that's holding a door open, saying hello to somebody, changing a diaper in the nursery, checking some kids in, down in faith kids, working behind the info desk, driving a van, picking up kids, bringing them to church, or whatever the case may be, working technical or, or whatever. There's so many opportunities. But give us four weeks, and we'll help you discover that. But first, what you have to get settled is your view of God. Know your worth. Know it. Would you bow your heads this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you for every individual that's in here today. I thank you, Lord, that we have value because you say that we have value and you demonstrated that value in Jesus. I ask you, Lord, that you'd help us just to receive that love right now. I just want to pray for anybody. If you're in here this morning and you say, I'm going to have two, two things. Here's the first one. You say, you know what? I want to be a Christ follower. I'm ready to walk through that open door. I've never given my life to Christ. I recognize inside of me that I'm not living right. I've got, I've got issues that we would call sin, things that separate us from God. If that's you here today, you want to begin fresh, you want to give your life to Christ, I'm going to just raise your hand. Say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to pray for you. Say, why would I raise my hand? You just thank you. You're just acknowledging externally what God is doing internally. Here's the second group. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Josh? People have, have, have tried to destroy my value and my worth either by what they said or what they've done to me. I need some healing. I need to know my value. I need to know my worth. If that's you this morning, nobody's looking around. But could you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. That you're a loving, gracious Savior. Father, I thank you for every individual that raised their hand and said, Father, I just I need healing. I don't know my worth. I don't know my value. Lord, I pray you begin to just speak to their heart. Holy Spirit, begin to heal those emotions, 
and those memories and those wounds that someone cut deep by what they said or what they did. And Holy Spirit, I I ask you to do what you do best, and that is reveal Jesus to them right now in the midst of that struggle. We thank you, Lord, that your word declares that you heal us of everything. You heal us. I thank you, Lord, that as we we walk out of here today, we'll know your worth. We'll know the worth that we have in you. We'll hold our heads up high. Father, we'll be empowered to go out and reach this world and grow your kingdom. We pray that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.